Open our Bibles to the book of James, chapter 4. We've been teaching through the book of James. Uh, verses 1 through 6 is strife through selfishness. Then security through submission is verses 7 through 10. And then we'll talk about backsliding through backbiting, verses 11 and 12. In verses 13 through 17, we'll talk about sinning through sidestepping God. So there's four divisions in this chapter. We've already got down to verse 4. And it says in verse 5, now here's where we'll pick it up, and we're still talking about strife through selfishness. It says, Do you think that the Scripture saith in vain, The Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? You know, the, the word Spirit in the New Testament, sometimes you see it capitalized, and sometimes you do not. But actually in the Greek, there, there are no capitals on the word Spirit. So you have to let the context show you whether it should be the Holy Spirit or man's spirit, our own spirit, or even an evil spirit, if you want to uh, go in that direction. But the word spirit is all the same. So how are we going to understand what the, the word spirit here is? I believe that possibly there should be a capital here, and I'll show you why. There is a warfare between our spirit and the carnal nature uh, that we have and the Holy Spirit. There's a warfare constantly going on. But if you look at it in this life, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy, earnestly yearns over us, so pleads with us and wants us to do what's right against the carnal nature of our being. Now then, I don't necessarily say that that has to be the meaning, but it seems to me that there's something within us that yearns and is enviously jealous. God's spirit is a jealous spirit in us. Did you know uh, that God is a jealous God? And so the Holy Spirit enviously yearns over us to be holy and to be what God would have us to be. And for every believer to be submissive to the, the uh, indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, realizing that God is a jealous God and the Holy Spirit is a jealous spirit, so to speak. Not in the evil sense of the word, but in the strict sense that he yearns over us. Uh, let me give you in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5. Let's read verses 1 through 5, and we'll see what God is to us. It says in Deuteronomy, concerning the nation of Israel, and Moses, uh, chapter 5, And Moses called all Israel and said unto them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your ears this day, that ye may learn them and keep and do them. They're called to obedience, aren't they? Now look. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord made uh, not his covenant with our fathers, but with us, even us who are all of us here alive this day. The Lord talked with you uh, face to face in the mount out of the midst of the fire. Now look, he said, I stood between the Lord and, and you at that time to show you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid by reason of the fire and went not up into the mount, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt from house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. God is a jealous God. Thou shalt not make thee any graven image or any a likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the waters beneath the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord... Now look, here you have it in verse 9. I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So, he says, I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. And so we have within us uh, God's indwelling presence, back to James now, that earnestly yearns over us to keep us in the right way. 
And that Holy Spirit within us wars against the fleshly spirit and the carnal nature that's within us constantly. And as a result, verse 6 now, if you have James, turn back to James 4, verse 6. As a result, just let this unfold. It says, but he giveth more grace. When you have this warfare going on, and, uh, and God's Spirit pulling you toward himself, and the carnal and evil nature pulling you the other way, what do you need? You need more grace, don't you? You need more grace. And he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. So every Christian needs more grace. We're saved by grace, and then we're sustained by grace. And God gives us more grace as it's needed. Have you ever thought what it would be like if you were saved by grace, not of works, you're saved by grace like the Bible teaches, and then you had no more grace to sustain you during life? You'd be left to your own to, to, to fare for yourself or to try to struggle through life. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Romans chapter 5. We're standing in grace. Or we're saved by grace. You turn back to Romans 5. Uh, look at this. Romans 5, verse uh, 2 says, By whom we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. So we're saved by grace. We're standing by grace. We're living under grace. We're not under the law, but under grace. And the grace of God is sufficient for all of our needs. The Lord said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for thee. Paul was talking about the, the weakness that he had, but he says, When I'm weak, then I'm strong. He said he prayed to the Lord three times for that thorn in the flesh to be removed. And God said, after Paul, he says, Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So that's the condition for the believer. And we have that constant sustaining grace given to us. James 4 now, verse 6. But he giveth more grace. Who does he give this to? Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Who does he give it to? The proud? No, he's not going to give grace to the proud. I want to give you a reference or two. Look in Psalm 138, verse 6. And we'll see what it says here. Look at this. Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the poor, un, unto the lowly rather. But the proud he knoweth afar off. But he has respect unto the lowly. Jesus himself said that uh, he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. But he that exalteth himself will what? Be abased. That's what Jesus said about it. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, we'll find in verse 5 it says this, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace unto the humble. Humble yourselves therefore, verse 6 says, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. So the Christian is to humble himself and submit himself to God and humble himself in the sight of God. If we do otherwise, we're selfish. And if we do otherwise, there will be strife. And in the context of this uh, section that we've been giving to you, if we do otherwise, there's going to strife come through the selfishness that we have. But if we'll humble ourselves in the sight of God, it'll work out for His glory and for our good. Now then, we come into this second division of this chapter. It says, security through submission. In verse 7, it says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Your greatest assurance and security that a believer can have is put things in the hands of God and then follow his instructions in dealing with Satan, with, the, with our adversary. 
complete submission to God. You know, a lot of people are trying to fight the devil in their own strength, and he gets the advantage over you because you're trying to do it your way instead of God's way. God says, first of all, I want submission, and then I want resistance. And I want submission to myself, and then you can have the power to resist the devil. You see, Jesus was led up of the Spirit, the Bible says, into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil, right? He was led of the Spirit into that wilderness temptation. When you get to the end of it, it says he came out of that temptation in the power of the Spirit. He went in that way and he came out that way. He was submissive to God, doing the will of God, following God. It was filled with the Spirit of God when he went in. And so he would be filled with the Spirit of God when he came out of that temptation. The trouble is we've got... Uh, we try to fight the devil on uh, his ground instead of the grounds wherein God has said, submit ourselves. So we're talking about security through submission. And so we need to, first of all, find God's will and his purpose. And then he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Look at the outcome of the temptation as far as Jesus is concerned in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Look at the outcome of it. Let's read verse 10 with the last word of Jesus concerning the temptation. Matthew 4, verse 10, it says, uh, Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan. What? Is that resisting the devil? Sure it is. Get thee hence, Satan. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. In Jesus' resistance of Satan, he used the word of God. He, he went into the temptation in the power of the Spirit. In fact, verse 1 says, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And if you'll notice the context there, you have Matthew 4. The word Spirit there is not capitalized either. And yet I know it was the Holy Spirit that led him up, right? So you have to be careful about saying every time you see the capital letter, it has to refer to the Holy Spirit. And every time you see the small letter, it has to refer to some other spirit. Because I know Jesus was led up of the Holy Spirit, and he was filled with the Spirit uh, into the wilderness temptation. Okay? but So that's the way he went in. But look at verse 10 again. You have your Matthew chapter 4. It says, Then said Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan. There's the resisting. Verse 1 is the, the submission to the Holy Spirit. Verse 10 is the resisting of Satan. And he resisted him in the power of God's Word. He applied the Word of God, which is the sword of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God. And he says, For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And I've just cited this last part of the temptation. The same pattern holds true all the way through it. But to bring you to a point in verse 11, Then the devil leaveth him. Resist the devil, James says, and he will what? Flee from you. Then the devil leaveth him. Now look, and what happened? And it says, Behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Okay? Now then look at James, how it uh, coincides with James. Look, let's read it in James. And let's read verse 7 and 8 and see it unfolding. You know the Scripture has a way of just linking itself one verse to another. Look at this again. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now look, follow. Draw nigh unto God and what? He will draw nigh unto you. The angels came and ministered unto him. See what happened? Jesus kept drawing near to God. He kept following God's plan. He was led of the Holy Spirit. He resisted the devil's temptations in the power of the Holy Spirit. He applied the word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit. And the devil fled from him. And angels came and ministered to him. The next verse in James says, Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. So all of these things were happening in the person of Christ. Now, if you turn back to 1 Peter, hold your place in James. Turn back to 1 Peter chapter 5. 
We just read a portion of it. In fact, Peter is harmonious with what we've been teaching. Look at, look at what we read in First Peter again. Let's follow it on down. We read verse 5 where it says, Ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you, all of you be submissive. All of you be subject one to another. And be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace unto the humble. Humble yourselves therefore unto the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Now, following on down. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. You say, well, James talked about our adversary and that we should resist him. Peter says your adversary is like a roaring lion. He walks about seeking whom he may devour. But notice what it says. James says, resist the devil. What does Peter say? He says, whom resist? Verse 9. Peter says, resist him too. And how are you going to do it? Just like Jesus did. Steadfast in the faith. See that? Steadfast in the faith. What is it? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And Jesus took the word of God, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, applied it or used it against his arch enemy, and he, the devil fled. Now here you have... The same thing that I told you a little bit ago, that we try to resist the devil in our own power and strength instead of submitting first to God and his power and his will and his word and using all the, the weapons of our warfare to fight against Satan. When you go against the devil, what are you going to say? Well, listen, I'm, you know, Peter, remember what Peter did? He says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and death. He says, though all men would deny you. In fact, we have First Peter to prove that he learned his, his lesson, right? Okay. And that's what we've been reading from. He says, yet will not I. He was boastful, boastful and self-confident. He said, Lord, if everyone would forsake you, I wouldn't do that. Self-confidence. What was he trusting in? His own determination. His own zeal. Why, he loved the Lord. And he says, I'm a man, and I have my strength and my power, and I, I just will not permit this. And he was going in his own strength, and he didn't realize yet that it was his own strength, possibly. And Jesus said, Before the cock crow, thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. And he thrice denied the Lord, didn't he? The Bible says when Jesus came out of the judgment hall, he turned and looked upon Peter as he sat by the enemy's fire, warmed himself, and he denied the Lord three times, and and. He turned and looked upon Peter, and the Bible says that Peter went out and wept bitterly. Why? He knew it failed, but he knew the reason of his failure was trusting in his own strength, not in God's. Beloved, any time you and I claim that we're going to do something of ourselves, see, that's not submission to God. Suppose Peter had said, Lord, I know there's trials ahead, and I, I don't want to deny you. I want to be true to you, but I'm going to need your power and your grace and your help because I, I know I'm human, and I know in my own strength I'll fail. But I know with your strength I will not. Possibly the, the story would have been written different. But it was written for a purpose, and it was happened for a purpose. To show us wherein we would be just like Peter. We'd trust in ourselves, wouldn't we? So if you're going to fight the battle against the arch enemy, you're going to have to do it according to God's plan. First of all, James, back to James now. Well, you still have that in First Peter? Let's follow it on down. Uh, in First Peter chapter uh, 5, verse 9, it says, Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. 
You see, your brethren are undergoing these same trials that you're undergoing. Don't think you're alone in having to fight the devil. Don't think you're alone with your problems because your brethren have the same afflictions. And the point is here, the, I believe the main point is this. It says, resist steadfast in the faith. That means that the person that has a chance or an opportunity of being victorious over the devil and getting and resisting him so that he will flee away has to do it God's way. And otherwise, you're going to fight a losing battle. That's why you have to resist him steadfast in the faith. You have to use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You have to lay hold upon God's faithfulness to you to help you uh, win the victory. And he's the only one that can do that. Paul said in Romans chapter 7. Look, back in Romans 7. I want to give you this. It's, it's very interesting when he's talking about his warfare. In verse 24, he realized what a sinful man he was. Romans 7, 24. He says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Here he was talking about the fighting against the flesh. For he had said that in me in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Now look, it's a victory. He says in verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my, the mind I myself serve the law of of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. The only victory I can claim is that which the Lord gives me. I thank God, he says, through our, our Lord Jesus Christ. So he could get the victory over the flesh, just like James and Peter have both told us we would get the victory over Satan. Okay, back in James now. James chapter 4, uh, verse 8 says, Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. A nearness to God. You know, the only way a, a sinner can uh, come near to God, how does a sinner come near to God? Through Jesus Christ. He cannot approach God except through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, to be near to God, he must uh, realize that uh, there is a provision made for that. The book of Ephesians chapter, let's see, 2, it says this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, it says that at that time you were without Christ. Here's the condition of sinners, of uh, Gentile sinners as well as Jewish, but here specifically Gentiles being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers of, uh, from the covenants of promise, which the Jews had and we didn't have, having, now look, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off, you who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. How is it you're made near? How is it that anyone, the worst sin in the world, can come near? We're saying near the cross, didn't we, tonight? Okay. How is it that anyone can come near? It's through the blood of, of Jesus Christ. And even the believer's access is through that precious blood. If you turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 10, let me give you this. Hebrews 10, look at, look at it. Verse 19, it says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. See that? Boldness to enter into the holiest. You know, that nearness is a nearness to God that the believer can enter into. And how is it? By the same virtue that the sinner is converted and saved, by the same virtue the saint has access to the very presence of God. What does it mean, having boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus? It means the very access into the divine presence of God, wherein only in the Old Testament the, the high priest could go, and that on a limited basis, only once a year, if you picture this as being the tabernacle or the temple later on, and this being the veil wherein God's presence dwelt behind the veil, and the Ark of the Covenant was back there, and the Shekinah glory behind that veil, 
And only the high priest could enter into that being the presence of the holy presence of God, the divine presence, only once a year and not without blood, which was typifying the blood of Christ behind that veil. So that the believer now has access into the very presence of God through the blood of Christ every day. Not just once a year, but day and night. A continual abiding privilege of access. You know, if we realize the restrictions of Israel of old, just in their uh, ceremonial services and their ability to approach God even through their ceremonies and, and the things that God established for them to, to teach them a lesson of His holiness and presence, we would realize that grace is so much greater than we give it credit for. We as believers, we go into the divine presence, into God, God's presence in heaven through the virtue of the blood of Christ day in and day out with no obstructions in the way, with nothing to keep us. And that's why it says that this veil, some 60 feet high and four inches thick, so the two yoke of oxen could not have uh, spread it and separated it and pulled it apart and ripped it and torn it if they were pulling in the opposite direction. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, it says the veil of the temple rent in twain from the top, so God had to do it, 60 feet high. I don't see a man jumping up there and doing it. <laughs> from the top to the bottom. When Jesus died on the cross, thus proving that through his death and through virtue, by virtue of his blood, we have access into the presence of God from now on. Because he's entered into that holy place in heaven, and he sprinkled the blood on the heavenly mercy seat. And we don't come to an altar or mercy here upon this earth, mercy seat upon this earth. We go directly in prayer and in our worship and in our faith to God's presence in heaven where Jesus is seated on the right hand of God. Isn't that an amazing fact? If we could just digest a bit of this that we're getting into. In fact, if you still have Hebrews chapter 10, it says in verse 20, By a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. By Jesus' flesh, or death on the cross, he opened that veil that separated us from God. And it says we have a new and living way. The word new, this is the only place in the New Testament where this word new is is given, and it means ever fresh. It means an ever fresh and living. It's the constant abiding way. It's alive today, and it's just as fresh today as when Jesus uh, died on the cross, and the and the whole plan of of God's redemption and access into God's presence was verified by His death and His resurrection, and it's just as fresh today, so that the the believer today can go just as sure into God's presence as the one in the few days after Jesus died and had sprinkled his blood on the throne of God in heaven and access was made and it was all completed and it's just as virtuous today as it was then. Isn't that an amazing thing? And then you go over in the book of Revelation you'll find that when they look for one that was worthy to open the book, Remember in the fifth chapter of the book of Revelation? And they couldn't find any man that was worthy. And they said, well, they finally found one and said they, they saw a lamb. They saw the line of the tribe of Judah. And then they saw a lamb as it had been newly slain in sacrifice. So that even when we get to heaven and are around the throne of God, Christ is going to appear to us and we're going to see him by virtue of his sacrifice and his death on the cross of Calvary. It's amazing how God's whole word is so harmonious in the in bringing out the the blood of Christ from the book of Genesis, the first chapter, right on through to Revelation twenty two twenty one, and it's all through the Bible. And so the blood is the scarlet thread 
That is traced all through the Bible. Okay, back to James quickly. We're not getting through with this lesson. Follow it on down. Verse 8 says, Draw nigh to God. And we talked about drawing nigh. By the way, you know, you and I can draw nigh this. I don't want to leave this before the time. But think of it a moment. We can draw nigh as a priest in our own right. You don't have to do, have someone to do it for you. In the Old Testament, only the high priest, we've already pointed out, could only go in once a year and not without blood, which was shed for uh, not only himself but for the sins of the people and was taken from the brazen altar outside and sprinkled on that mercy seat inside the veil. And you know, tradition says that the Jews... I don't know this to be true, but I can, I can see that it would make sense that the Jews, with this restriction, would tie a cord or a rope around the leg of that priest because they knew if he went in there and he, he went in and, and did not meet God's conditions upon going in, they would have no way to get him out without one of them dying. So they could drag him out from behind that veil. Now, I don't know that that's true, but they had a great fear of entering God's presence unless it was just exactly as was specified. But what I wanted to say is that you and I as believers are priests in our own right. We have no restrictions whatsoever. We enter in by faith and we have all the obstacles, all the things moved out of the way. We don't even have to go to a preacher or to a priest so called upon this earth. See, they don't have to go to a man confess your sins. And say, well, now, I know that you're the only one who can get through to God for me. No, we do it in our own right. And you know, a lot of preachers have assumed a kind of a priestly posture in this world. Did you know that? A lot of preachers have assumed that, or at least have acted like that they're the one that gets you through to the presence of God. We're all to give the instructions for the sinner to be saved by grace through faith, believing on Christ. And we're also to give the instructions to the saints of God that when they have a problem... Talk it over with the Lord. Go straight into the presence of God. We don't have uh, restrictions like Catholicism or other religions that say, well, the preacher's the one that's got to do it. And we have all this stuff going on in, on the television arguments about whether, you know, who, whether women should be ordained as priests. But I, I've never found out where they should show that men should even be ordained as priests. And yet they call them priests in various churches. But see... Uh, a man, me as a minister, I'm no more a priest than you are. I am a priest in my own right as a believer, just as you are a priest in your own right as a believer. And Peter tells us about that too. Look in First Peter. First Peter chapter 2, it says this in verse 4, To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also, ye also, Peter says, as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, the church of God, the house of God, and holy priesthood. You're a holy priesthood. Now look, to offer up spiritual sacrifices, not sacrifices like they did in the Old Testament, but spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Who's he talking to? Believers. Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he that believeth, the believer, on him shall not be confounded, confused, be made ashamed. Unto you therefore which believe, he's talking about believers, right? Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto they were appointed. But ye, here you have it, ye believers, are what? a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, look at that, and holy nation, a peculiar people, 
that you should show forth the praises, and the word means virtues, of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So you're a holy priesthood, a chosen generation. All believers are today. And you know, if you'd get God's word uh, really down in your heart and life, we'd do away with a lot of the hierarchy and a lot of the the uh, lording it over God's heritage and... and uh, putting preachers up on a pedestal and putting priests in the way of the means of forgiveness and absolving your sins, you just do away with it. You wouldn't have it. There's a lot of things that just wouldn't, wouldn't match up to God's Word. And you know, I, I say all this in due respect because I know that there are many good, sincere people that, that uh, are under some of these yokes that we're talking about that have never been told that they're free to come into God's presence without any... Uh, obstructions without any man-made uh, intervention whatsoever. And we find that it's that somewhat true in a lot of denominations other than uh, Catholicism, though we've directly mentioned that, but there's a lot of them that have their priestly functions and different uh, cults have those as well, that you have to go through that priest and he has to do everything. Mormonism has it. Other, uh, even so-called Protestant denominations have a, a kind of a priestly function in the church to where that you've got to go through them. The Bible doesn't teach that. So if I were to leave you with a word tonight, when you leave here, I'd say you go home and ask God to help you, whatever your problem is. And you go straight, and you've got the right to come boldly, Hebrews chapter 4, under the throne of grace, that you may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Back in James 4, quickly. It says, Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. And the nearness... Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Even brethren can be sinners and double-minded. We're sinners saved by grace. And if we rebel against God, and sometimes we're double-minded, the Bible says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And James has already used this term, double-mindedness, having one eye on uh, ourselves in the world and another eye on God and being double-minded, never being stable, never being secure. He says, be afflicted and, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into heaviness. When we look inward and we see the flesh and what it means, we can certainly uh, realize that there is a need to be afflicted and mourn of, over our sinful condition. And then let our laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into heaviness. Bring about genuine repentance in our hearts. He says, humble yourselves, verse 10, in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. There's the answer. So it all speaks of security then through what? Through submission to God. Security through submission to God. Now then, the third section, I don't know how much time we'll have to deal with it, but it's backsliding through backbiting, verses 11 and 12. Look at verse 11. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. Who's he talking to? Christians. Brethren, he says, do not speak evil one of another. Remember the law said, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And evil speaking of any kind, or judgment speaking. Look, let's read the rest of verse 11. He that speaketh evil of his brother, and judges his brother, speaketh evil of the law, and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. He set himself up as a judge. You know, there's no scripture that I can find anywhere where a Christian is to judge his brother. Now then, 
We do, except for one thing, we might put it back in another context and say when the church is called together to discipline a brother in certain things that are well, that are known, definitely known. But I'm talking about a personal judgment, past judgment upon someone just for because they differ in something or because we think they've got a sin that, that we don't have and we ought to point it out to them or we ought to judge them concerning it. There's not that kind of judgment that exists in the New Testament. And, and it's a terrible thing when Christians start passing judgment on the other fellow. Don't ever judge that fellow. You may have to walk in his shoes someday. It may look a little different from, from his sandals than yours, right? You put his coat on and walk in it a while. And you may find out that it's a little different situation to deal with. And we're too quick to judge and pass judgment upon other people. We know the Word of God is, is not different for one person than it is another. We know the Word of God teaches us how to live and what we ought to follow. But at the same time, we don't know how hard it may be for some individual in that particular thing wherein we see maybe a fault or an error in their life as a Christian. We don't know how difficult it is for them to overcome that. We don't know how much they're trying to overcome it. We don't know all the circumstances. We don't know all about it. And you know, that's called prejudice, isn't it? That is to prejudge. Judge without knowing all the facts. See? And until we know all the facts, we certainly would not be intelligent enough to judge that situation. James is saying if we judge, we're making ourselves the judge uh, over the brethren. And especially when it comes to speaking evil of his brother and judges his brother. Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged, that you be not judged. See, And with what judgment you judge, it shall be judged. You'll be judged by that same judgment. Paul says in the book of Romans, remember chapter 2, he says, Wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thy what? Self. For thou that judgest doest the same things. Usually when we want to pass judgment on someone, if we just look inside, we'll find we're just as guilty as they are. We'll say, that person is, uh, uh, you, whatever fault it is, we'll point it out. If we just search deep enough inside, we've probably got a little bit of that ourselves. That's a sad situation, isn't it? For us to sit here and, and look at someone else and say, now look, here's what's wrong with you. And then fail to search inside and say, oh, well, by the way, that's what's wrong with me too. <laughs> and you know, Paul was being judged or called into to question by the Corinthians. And he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, let me give you this. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning with verse uh, 2. He says, More, moreover, it is required of stewards that a man be found faithful. Look at this. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you. They were questioning Paul's apostleship, questioning his faithfulness, questioning his service to God and various things. He says, with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment, any man's judgment. Yea, I judge not my own self. He said, I don't even know how to consider it myself. But he says, for I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified. I can't justify myself either. Just because I don't realize what all's wrong with me. Just because I cannot sit in judgment in a proper way. But then he goes on to say, But he that judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness, and will make manifest the counsels of the heart. And then shall every man have praise of God. He, he says, you leave that to the proper time and the proper judge, and he'll take care of it in his own way. And that's where we get off a lot of time. We, we speak evil one of another. We should not do that. James says that we're taking the law into our own hands when we do that. You've heard about taking the law into your own hands? Well, that's what James says we're doing in, 
in uh, chapter 4, verse 11. Speak not evil one of another, back in James. Brethren, he that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. And then it says in verse 12, There is one lawgiver, look here, who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? Only one has power to save and only one has power to destroy. There is one lawgiver. He is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. He is able to destroy too. Let me give you some. We know that the Bible teaches that God is able to save. The Lord will save all who call upon him, right? But what about uh, this part uh, that we just pointed out of the fact that he is able to destroy? Look in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Matthew 10, verse 28. It says, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able. Talking about being able. There's one lawgiver that's able to both save and destroy. Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who, which is able, the word able enters the picture quite a bit, to destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear him. He's able to save and he's able to destroy. And James points that out. Do you know God has committed all judgment unto the Son? The Bible says in uh, the book of John chapter 5 that God judgeth no man, the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. In the book of Acts, I believe it's chapter 17, verse 31, it says, God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, who is that, Jesus, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and the resurrection is God's guarantee of judgment, in that he hath raised him from the dead. Talk about Christ's resurrection, what it means. It, he was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. But his resurrection is also symbolical of our own resurrection and it is also a guarantee of the fact that there's going to be a day of judgment and Jesus is going to be the judge and God has already appointed the day and the resurrection guarantees it because he's living seated on high on the right hand of God. So, I don't think we'll have time to get into our next lesson. Look, turn back to James now and uh, we will pick up uh, in our next lesson with the third, with the last section of this of this. Uh, fourth chapter, and it will be uh, sinning through sidestepping God. Sinning through sidestepping God. We'll pick up with verse 13, the Lord willing, in our next Sunday evening lesson. We have a couple more lessons, at least, in the book of James. A couple more lessons to rightly divide the word of truth. Thank you very much for your kind attention. Let's stand together for prayer.